0: Talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Friday is here. How about we take this weekend to forget about the doom and gloom some seem to be obsessed with.
2: Here's
0: Scott
2: Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. It's a Friday. And I think that requires a live teenage head. Uh, thanks to Will Weber behind the board. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard. Jump into the convo. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. nine hundred 9900 on your cell. Another jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Lots going on today. Of course, the big news, uh, Guy LaFleur passes away at age uh, 70. He was... uh uh, he was battling lung cancer as uh, many of you may know and and of course just a, an absolute legend especially for my uh for Montreal Canadiens uh fans so uh, lots of chatter around that today certainly uh, lots of tributes coming in as well uh you know what we'll play this clip right now here's uh here's a, cl- a clip uh, a clip of Chris Nyland, uh former teammate talking about Guy Lafleur
3: he'll go on and be a
4: certainly a true icon and hero in this province uh, forever and um uh, you look at belleville rocket before him, you know, like the 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 esteem in which they're held by you know the passionate uh french canadians uh it's incredible
5: it's incredible
2: And many, uh, not only in the hockey world, but, uh, anyone who knows the province of Quebec, Montreal Canadiens, it's, it's virtually a a religion there. And, uh, of course, Guy Lafleur, uh, one of the main, uh, one of the main architects of that. I'm going to play you a clip. I think Rick Zamprin got this for us. And, uh, this is a clip of 1979 play by play game seven semifinals. This is Boston and Montreal. Uh, and this pretty much says it all. 55 seconds left in the penalty, a minute
5: and 27 seconds left in regulation time. Boston 4, Montreal 3. LaFleur coming out rather gingerly on the right side. He gives it into the mayor. Back to LaFleur!
2: And there you have it. The rest is history, as they say. So I'm sure, uh, over the course of the weekend, you'll see lots of tributes, uh, uh pouring in for Guy Lafleur, who has passed away, uh, passed away at the age of 70. Uh, oddly enough, <laughs> and this is, you know, this just shows you the power of, of this man, uh, during this time. Um, uh, my brother-in-law, who, uh, has dated my sister probably since she was 17, uh, and started so in the 70s, um, he moved, his family moved from Montreal to, uh, the Markham area where I grew up. And so, you know, he came there and, 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 went to high school, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe grade nine or grade 10. He started, uh, at Markham and as the family, uh, moved from Montreal to, to this area, to Southern Ontario. And, you know, for years, for years, uh, our family just called him Guy. <laughs> because all of his friends and all of his buddies at high school all called him Guy. Uh, And, you know, I don't remember, I I think, till we got to middle age, where we actually started calling my brother-in-law by his real name, which is John. And his, you know, last name's Kofflech, which is, you know, um, German, not, not Quebec or French in any way. So it just shows you the absolute power of uh, of this heroic figure in Quebec and in hockey uh, where, you know, a kid moves from Montreal, and because he's from Montreal and Guy Lafleur's the king, his nickname is now Guy, and my goodness, it stuck for like 10 years until we were in middle age and you know, I think I saw my sister get mad at him, and actually called him John. Uh, anyway, that's just uh, one personal story from a non-hockey fan, a non-hockey uh, a Montreal fan, that's for sure. And and you know, of of the power of of this image of this guy who was who was bigger than life and one of many uh to come out of the montreal canadian so we'll be talking about that coming up a little later on as well also on the show uh we've talked a lot and you know we remember when you know there was just a couple of staple restaurants in hamilton and now all of a sudden uh well in the last 10 years it has exploded uh we're going to talk to another one of those restaurants who uh has got some recognition over the last little while about their brunch we'll talk about that coming up also The golden age of streaming, is it changing? Is it coming to an end? What is the future going to look like as we see Netflix having problems uh, when it comes to uh, making enough dough to pay the bills? Uh, and, and talking about increasing rates and possibly even advertising we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on also what sort of changes to the workplace could we see in the short term and the long term as we slowly get back we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on as well also don't forget coming up to today this afternoon after the five o'clock news we'll be giving away tickets to see the hamilton bulldogs game two uh game two coming up on monday uh, april 25th that of course at first ontario center last night the bulldogs have victorious, uh, beating the Peterborough Peets, I believe it's 5-2, to and uh, Reed Duffy's going to be joining us a little later on to talk more about that. Also, we're going to talk to one of the 61 Canadians that has been banned from uh, entering Russia, and I'm telling you, he is heartbroken, upset, I'm not sure how he's going to get over it. Uh, and may require can, uh, counseling. We're going to talk to John Iveson, journalist with the National Post, coming up a little later on uh, as well. Also, uh, more about Guy Lafleur coming up in uh, later on in the show with those uh, Bulldogs tickets. Also going to uh, have a chat with our favorite liberal, Larry DeAnne, and talk about center politics and where it's gone and how we get that all back. It is all coming up. On Hamilton Today, Erica is joining us from the Electric Diner. Reason being, the website Open Table has compiled a list of the 100 best places to eat brunch in Canada. Canada. And, you know, brunch, Mother's Day. Uh, And three Hamilton eateries have made the list. The Mule on King William Street, Rapscallion on James North, and the Electric Diner on Hess. And you might remember, uh, we, we talked to the Electric Diner on Hess in regard to um uh, not so <laughs> great an event when they tried to put heaters in their patio to extend the season during covid and they got stolen erica how are you
6: hey i'm good thanks for having me again
2: boy what a bizarre year this has turned out to be for you
6: <laughs> you're telling me what a crazy year i mean good with the bad right there's silver lining and everything i believe and uh i think we really uh stand true to that
2: so let's get back to when we were talking initially during the pandemic and the story of the heaters. Give us, uh, tell everybody what happened there.
6: Oh gosh! So um, you know, uh, we were only allowed to do outdoor dining at the time, which is always a restaurant's dream during January. Um, so you know, we said we've we've had so many hurdles come our way, we just did it again and said, okay, we're gonna. We're going to serve outside. So, um, you know, we invested in a couple of more expensive heaters. We had two the year before. And we did outdoor dining. It, it worked. People were brave enough to sit out there and be served at minus 20 temperatures. Um, you know, we had to thank the community of Hamilton for being so brave in doing that and keeping us in business. And lo and behold, overnight, we had all four of our very expensive heaters taken. Uh, we had a tent out there, and the guy was able to get through the locks and take them overnight. We discovered this the next morning, and um, our neighbor started a GoFundMe, was able to cost in 24 hours uh, just over $12,000 to replace them, um, which was amazing. We couldn't believe that in 24 hours we had the money back, all thanks to friends and family and Hamilton Community.
5: Same day, I
6: get an Instagram phone call from someone I've never met before, a um, Named John, and he said, "I know you don't know me, but I think I see your heaters. I've seen them all over Instagram. You know, people trying to get us uh, money through GoFundMe, and I see them on someone's front lawn. I swear." So, the husband, who's head chef, went down there, and sure enough, there they were. He waited for four hours for the cops, uh, did a little stakeout, and once they were on the move, did a little uh, um, high, hot pursuit. <laughs> And uh, we got them. And we got all four back that same night. So we were able to full circles give everybody's GoFundMe money back. So it was a really amazing story.
2: What an incredible story. Unbelievable. So, uh, you know, and, and so rewarding to have the community step up the way they did. And then, of course, everything works out in the end. But now uh, your, your restaurant has been part of this Open Tables 100 Best Places to Get Brunch. So, man, that's like the cherry on top of all of this.
6: I know. I mean, we we just found out about it today. A few customers came in, and we were looking it up uh, just before you guys called us. And uh, we, we couldn't believe it. And it's, I mean, just another one of those things. We, it's, we're just in awe of uh, the turn of events over the last year, but we're so grateful.
2: It certainly does give you faith again, doesn't it?
6: Oh, absolutely. If anything, you know, and we're still trucking after all this, uh, faith is definitely the right word for it.
2: So, uh, tell us about brunch and, and what it's like at your place.
6: Well, we have brunch daily until four p.m. Um, so, which is helpful. I mean, Saturday, Sunday brunch is always quite busy, um, but during the week, you know, it's uh, not a lot of places do that. So, um, we've become busier. Uh, our food is nostalgic. It's you know uh, comfortable, but um, you know, uh, with a higher level of quality. So. You know, you'll get uh, a little bit twists on some things. We have a grilled cheese, eggs benny. uh, So it's two mini grilled cheese with uh, poached eggs and a tomato soup hollandaise. So it's a play on some of the foods we used to eat back in the 80s, which, you know, every Saturday, Sunday we had grilled cheese with tomato soup to dip it in so you know head chef jamie yeah head chef jamie kind of did a twist on that and made it into one of our most popular brunch items along with a cinnamon toast crunch i don't know if you remember that cereal but yes are you
2: kidding me we've got we've got some in the cupboard right now my kid goes through that stuff like it's unbelievable i can't believe it
6: it's back and we do it um so we um uh cornflake crust uh deep fried french toast with a maple cream and whipped cream and fresh strawberries all together, so there's, like, crunch and savory and sweet all together. It's quite amazing. I'm I'm sure you can smell the cinnamon sugar when I just explain it now, but (laughs) it's outstanding. So, you know, the food speaks for itself. It's not just your uh, basic greasy spoon, which is, you know, greasy spoon works as well, but as a little bit more. So you can go from having an amazing burger to one of our, our salads or bowls our brunch so there's something for everybody
2: so how has it been now that you're at this stage of the pandemic past the two-year mark i mean obviously the restrictions are lifting what does it look like for you in an electric diner
6: honestly i have to say um we are busier than ever we're um we just almost can't can't handle had the the mm-hmm. demand on the weekends especially so um which you know we're, we're trying to work on we only have uh uh, the kitchen can only do so much it's a small kitchen yeah. and so we're looking to expand and um you know we're looking for a second location in hamilton right now uh very seriously and i don't want to announce anything because pen has a bit of paper but we're very close and we hope that that will really help spread out some of the demand and maybe with a bigger kitchen sort of help feed both places and uh you know and give the public what they're looking for. We're just so fortunate. We just can't believe that we're in this spot after 2 years after everything we've been through where we're looking for a second location. I mean, it's it's really the best thing uh, wow. that could have come through all this I know yeah. what a great, great news
2: story man. and again, considering we you know we were calling we were uh, you know calling all these businesses and in, and in, in, uh, in, in hospitality and retail and whatever over the course of this pandemic and hearing how difficult it was it's so exciting to see things that have turned around for you Erica. and even you know with the theft and whatever and now expanding to another location I mean that is just so great to hear. It's a true success story. And congratulations to you.
6: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Patio season's here. We just extended the patio on George Street, uh, George and Hess. So come on out uh, because, I mean, it's gorgeous out right now. We're ready to go. If you want to sit out and have a drink and a burger, we're ready for (laughs) you.
2: All right. Erica, owner of the Electric Diner, one of three places in Hamilton, along with a mule on King William and Rapscallion on James North, uh, on Open Table's list of the 100 best places to get brunch in Canada. Congratulations, Erica.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today Podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Netflix is looking to rework their model, possibly even adding ads. Reason for it, lots of competition, uh, many streaming channels now, and lots have jumped into the game. Where does that knee uh, leave Netflix and the whole streaming business moving forward? Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author. You can find out more at Brio TV. He is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh yeah, I'm fine. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So Netflix really was quite the success story because, especially the way it started, it started as a uh, CD or sorry DVD uh, purchase rental uh, situation, which you could do by mail, and then you know now it's giving us things like uh, Ozark and and Breaking Bad. Uh, it, this company has had a fascinating uh, evolution, hasn't it?
4: yes it has it used to be the big red box outside your grocery store but yeah for the last 10 11 years they've been dominating in the streaming market and you know let's got you know we're not we don't have to go around starting a collection for them yet scott they're still in 222 million homes around the world so they're not quite done
2: so uh why are they having difficulty now is it just a saturation there are so many of these channels now
4: that's part of it. There's a lot of reasons, but yeah, the competition is ramped up. Uh, Disney plus has come from nowhere to a hundred and six hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty million 130 million subscribers, uh, in two and a half years, you've got prime video. Uh, it's been around for a while now. That's 175 million HBO, uh, max 75 million. So yeah, there's getting gang tackled. And, um, a lot of these services, too, the competition, it's Warners, it's Paramount, yeah. and it's Disney. They've taken back Friends. They've taken back uh, Star Trek. So a lot of the stuff that you used to subscribe and get with Netflix, it ain't there anymore, and uh, their shelves are a little more bare.
2: So what is this about? Is Because obviously there's, you know, the back catalogs of Friends or Happy Days or whatever. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of TV sitcoms for all of this stuff. Is that where the key is, or is it these new uh, productions that are making uh, all kinds of waves, no matter what the platform is?
4: Yeah, you know, it's who has the hottest show now. And yeah. it's not Netflix at the moment. A year ago, we were talking about The Crown and uh, The Queen's Gambit. Imagine a show about chess and things like that. Uh, they don't have, you know, they've got a show now, Is It Cake? You know, that's not quite as exciting. Uh, yeah. It's literally a show where celebrities guess, is that a bowling ball or is it cake? Uh, it sounds desperate. So, you know, they still have stuff for sure. You're going to see Ozark coming back there later this week. Uh, people have been waiting to see that. But yeah. it's just maybe not quite the, the hottest show as it was for many, many years.
2: So is this, um, you know, Netflix comes in with this great idea, all the monsters come in and, and sort of steal the idea, and they have the deep pockets in the back catalogs to pretty much muscle in. At the end of the day, who is more likely, who has the deeper pockets to produce uh, these great shows? D- are we just automatically to think it's the Disneys and the bigger, the bigger production houses?
4: Well, certainly, Disney has pretty deep pockets. I mean, they're in a fight now with the governor of uh, Florida. Uh, there's other stuff going on. Their stocks down as well. So, you know, it's just maybe are we kind of taking a little step back from streaming and thinking about it now. Prices are going up. Netflix has had three price increases if you count the addition of HST in the last three or four years. Uh, you know, and you go to fill your car up or go to buy groceries, and you're starting to look at your cable and your discretionary spending and thinking, you know, I've looked at at the Netflix menu for 25 minutes now. I don't see anything I want to see. Do I need Hmm. that in May? Do I need it in June? That's a big part of what's happening right now
2: as well. So how are people going to decide which of these they want to keep? Are they going to have just one? Are they going to have two or three? Are they going to drop some of the six that they that they had in the past? I mean because again, it, 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 once you get tired of watching uh you know, MASH or or Seinfeld or whatever you haven't seen uh because perhaps you're younger or such, what's left? How how are how, how are people going to decide which one of these services to take? Is it just is it just really is it just really the show of the day?
4: Well, it, it, the, the problem is it's just not one service that has it all, right? You can't see everything on one of these. Yeah. you got to jump around. That's always going to be the case, I think. You know, you're, they're trying different things. Apple TV+, Plus. they've got live baseballs now. Friday, Friday nights, they're showing doubleheaders. They're getting into, you know, streamers are getting into live programming. But part of it, Scott, I think is we've gone through this pandemic. People are starting to emerge from isolation, and we've just we've had a couple of years now where we've been delivered all this content, and yeah. as much as that's been great, we get it on demand. We're so greedy now; we're like babies. We want it now, and it has to be great, and it has to be every Friday, and it has to be endless. And that's just not television. It doesn't quite work that way. And the other thing is our eyes are bleeding from screaming and screens, from doing Zoom calls, from watching everything. It's nice out now. We're going to go for a walk and maybe turn off and unplug.
2: You know, it's also when you were talking about, uh, you know, how many there are, and then there's so many, uh, you know, three or four or whatever big players, it almost sounds like the old days. So here we had, you know, a bazillion channels, and here we are coming back to the three or four basic ones.
4: And that's the lesson, you know, like if it was an exact science, then NBC and ABC and CTV would always be king of the castles and none of the streaming would have happened. But you can't automatically snap your fingers and keep having a hit. You can give Ryan Murphy 300 million and lure him to Netflix. Doesn't mean you're going to get the next American Horror Story. Uh, You might end up with uh, halston which he did and nobody watched you know so if it was that easy we'd all be doing it
2: uh speaking of full circle so is ads the answer here Uh, to keep the prices down you can buy the basic version you can buy another version or ad free completely
4: it all depends on your budget. You know, there's services now like Tubi. If you want to see old shows, laughing, things like that, there's a service called Tubi. It's ad-supported video on demand. It costs like four or five bucks. It's often these things are an add-on if you already have Amazon or Apple or something else. Um, and so, yeah, you know, maybe Netflix would launch baby Netflix and give you ones with short ads on it. But really, Scott, it's the shows. and. It doesn't matter what it costs. If you have to see Game of Thrones or whatever the next Game of Thrones is, you will pay 20 bucks a month to see it. You don't care if there's a $5 version.
2: So priority for these companies is content production. They have to, just like everybody else, come up with a hit show.
4: Yeah, and Netflix spends thirteen billion apparently a year to create content, and they've been able to do that because they're so dominant. They've had so much of the market, and now that the others are catching up, uh, being able to kind of go out there and throw that kind of money around is getting tougher because uh, you know you don't have as much as the market, or and you you know they're forecasting they're going to lose a couple million more subscribers in the next quarter, and so at some point. Yeah, uh, you know the the people who invest are going to start to say, "Wait a minute," you know.
2: More and more, it's sounding like traditional television. When are you going to go to the upfronts for all these streaming uh, uh, shows that are coming out?
4: <laughs> I just hope I can go to the upfront and I'm not sitting zooming it from Brampton. That's, uh,
2: <laughs> fingers oh. crossed. Bill Brio, with his TV critic and author Brio TV, to find out more talking about streaming and what's next. Uh, Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You
0: too, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk nine hundred.
2: Lots of chatter over the last two years of a global pandemic, uh, working from home, not working from home, uh, the situation once everyone heads back. What is that going to look like? Uh, many thought, uh, many companies thought that when people headed home, that the productivity would go down the uh, toilet, and in fact, the exact opposite happened. Productivity went up. And uh, as a matter of fact, some working from home uh, are burning out because uh, they're spending too much time. It's too easy to uh, sit in front of the c- uh, computer and do too much stuff uh, because you're wrapped around it all the time. So what does it look like heading back? Uh, we've seen, we've heard about hybrid models and such. Now even pets in the workplace. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Michael Halinski, Assistant Professor, Department of HR Management and Organizational Behavior at Ryerson University. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time, I hope you're well. Of course, I am. So your thoughts, Uh, we've certainly heard uh, about a hybrid sort of situation going back. Does anybody really know what this new template is gonna look like yet?
1: No, of course not, we're we're still experimenting. This is a, a brave new world that we're entering. All that we know is that it's different than pre-COVID and it's different than in the middle of COVID, but we don't really know what it's going to turn into now that we're entering a post-COVID kind of world.
2: Uh, it seemed as things were starting to end at whatever wave <laughs> and there was chatter of people moving back. Um, uh, you know, some were hesitant, some were anxious to get back and such. But what about productivity when we've seen productivity in many places go up as a result of uh those are some of those that are working from home how how do you see companies balancing this uh if when if and when people head back does productivity go up or go down
1: well that's a really good question i I think for the fact that most organizations are are trying to or are offering incentives and and mechanism putting mechanisms in place to encourage people back in the office such as encouraging more pets to enter the workplace Uh, That would suggest that organizations are more comfortable with having employees work on site and they believe that employees are both happier and more productive when they're working on site. At least that's what their efforts would suggest. Do I think that's the reality of what should actually take place? No, Uh, but that is certainly what their behaviors are indicating to employees.
2: Well, we've even heard the, you know surveys from employees saying nah, they kind of like it. Uh, they want a hybrid version. They don't want to go back to the old way. So wh- what should we do here, do you think?
1: Listen to employees. We have learned so much over the past two years during COVID in terms of, in terms of forcing employees to work remotely. Employers know so much about their, about their organization, what they're capable of doing, how to manage employees working remotely, leverage that insight, and work with employees to form, to create a work arrangement that both is amenable to employees as well as employers and in doing so, they can expand their grasp or their, expand their reach in terms of recruitment and their ability to retain talent because there is still a massive issue in terms of job mobility and turnover levels are, have been incredibly high over the past year.
2: What about the atmosphere between those that can and want to go in and those that don't? Is there going to be like a two-tier system here?
1: Well, I'm not sure I would, I would classify it as a two-tier system. Um, there are certainly jobs pre-pandemic. There were jobs that could be done from home or remotely, as well as there are certain jobs that required more travel, such as if you're in sales, Uh, You certainly needed to be traveling more than than other occupations. So there's always different types of jobs and there's different Mm -hmm. demands on them. I think that what we've learned over the past two years is how we need to view each job and the demands and expectations associated with each job might change drastically. And how can the employer uh, still meet all of their legitimate business needs in a changing, quickly changing environment, but still allowing employees or empowering employees to be as happy, uh, improve their well-being as much as possible, but still being as productive in their current roles.
2: So the template of one size should fit all uh, doesn't necessarily cut it anymore.
1: I wish it did. There's no silver bullet in the future.
2: What about what people want and what employees want returning? We talked about pets and dogs uh, in the workplace. That's been chatted about for a while. And then the issue came up, well, I'm allergic. I don't want uh, Bill's dog around me. Um, But now we're seeing, you know, much like we have in in many industries, we're seeing uh, regulations relax a little bit. What do do you think employees want in the workplace when they head back?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I think that's just a Band-Aid solution. I think bringing pets to, to the office is not a permanent solution bringing animals yeah. to workplace sure it might help in certain smaller environments but it is not a permanent solution i think that employers are are beginning to uh, offer this as again a way to motivate employees back to the workplace but in my opinion that is not what should be happening instead employers should be spending more effort in terms of trying to figure out how to manage employees in a hybrid environment currently managers do not are not prepared and are not trained in how to manage Uh, and communicate with employees in a hybrid environment. This is all new. Uh, I think that employers need to spend more time on the management of a hybrid environment rather than simply trying to create band-aid solutions for temporarily appeasing uh, a few employees, but in, in the same token, might disrupt others.
2: So as much focus on the happiness of the employee and managing the people as opposed to managing the product.
1: Well, yes. Yes, absolutely. If you if you don't have, if your employees' well-being is not high, they're going to leave. So if you want your turnover levels to continue to be high, then focus on what you're producing and don't focus on your employees.
2: Dr. Michael Holinsky with us, Assistant Professor, Department of HR Management and Organizational Behavior, Ryerson University, about returning to work. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well of course all the best all right one hour from now we give away uh tickets to see the hamilton bulldogs reed duffy is with us right now uh, manager broadcast communications play-by-play announcer for your hamilton bulldogs he is with us now reed thanks for the time i hope you're well
3: oh scott it's always a pleasure to be with you and for me that happy day was yesterday because all i had the time to focus <laughs> on was we have playoff hockey for the first time in three years so
2: what was that like i mean obviously a big win for the bulldogs but quite a night
3: you know, going into it, 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 it was almost a, a bit of a foreign concept because it had been so long since we had done a playoff game, and you start to wonder, does the, do these things still feel any different than they used to? Like, you used to go into that big moment of the playoffs in game one, you get the butterflies. You know, I can tell you for sure, by about 6.15 as I was getting ready to go live, uh, the butterflies were there, and I can't imagine how the players were feeling down in the tunnel because playoff hockey is back and they proved that last night the peets came out and they turned up the physical tempo and showed the bulldogs hey we're in a series here guys and the bulldogs answered right back and in the second period the offense took over and it was quite something to see and this is a tough
2: spot for the bulldogs i mean we know we ha- they've had a phenomenal year and and you know first in the country and all of that sort of thing but now it seems like it's theirs to lose so that's a different type of pressure
3: Scott, thank you for saying that. I I wanted to say that on the air last night, but I didn't want to come off as saying, all the Bulldogs are some sort of uh, underdog or or something Mm. in that sense. It's that when the Bulldogs go in as the number one seed, the pressure is on them in a one-hit because Peterborough, if they win a game, they're ahead of where a lot of people thought they would be. Now, Peterborough doesn't think that way. But outside observers certainly do. So the Bulldogs had a lot of pressure coming out of the gates to have a good start. I would say it was good enough. And by the second period, they were off and running. And you could see the way they got kind of regrouped in that first intermission. Okay, now a lot of us have seen our first playoff action. Now we can turn this around into our favor and move it forward. And that transition happened quick.
2: And what are you expecting Monday night? More of the same, or uh, obviously they're going to come. Uh, Peterborough is going to come out of the gate again, hot, and and try to make that uh, initial uh, initial impact. What are you expecting for Monday?
3: Well, this is exactly why, Scott. Somebody needs to uh, definitely be on the line and getting those tickets for Monday because Peterborough has to come out hot. They have to steal a game at some point in Hamilton if they want any shot at winning the series because Hamilton has the home ice advantage. So Peterborough desperately needs a game on the road, they do not want to go back home down 0-2 with the Bulldogs holding all the momentum. So if Peterborough is going to come out with a fight, if they're going to put up a battle here in this series, I really believe it's going to be in game two. They are going to need to be sharp. The Bulldogs are going to have to be sharper to counter it. They don't want to give up one on home ice. They want that advantage. Press it as they go onto the road. This could be a big, big game in this series to decide how the rest of it's going to go barn burner
2: on monday night and we've got your tickets coming up exactly one hour from now on hamilton bulldogs reverse trivia reed duffy with us manager broadcast and communications play-by-play announcer for your hamilton bulldogs you can hear it in his voice the excitement is in the city the bulldogs are on a tear reed good luck thanks for the time be well
3: scott always a pleasure
0: thanks for having me you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: 61 Canadians have been added to the list of those that have been banned from entering Russia. And you can imagine uh, and everything from politicians to journalists, uh, even those working in the back rooms for politicians uh, and such. And as you can imagine, these people are... Um, Well, are they heartbroken or wearing it like a badge of honour? One of those Canadians that's uh, of the 61 is John Iveson, journalist with the National Post, and he's with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So how did you find out about this? How did you even know you were on this list?
5: Uh, One of my colleagues was uh, dealing with uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs yesterday, and I guess they had just got the list, and uh, they said that I was on it. And then he sent me the list and it was, it's official Russian Federation. It's it, written in Cyrillic, but the the only words I recognized were my name. So, huh. so that was it. I don't know what quite what I'm banned from, but I'm banned from something.
2: So what happens now? Is there a process? Do you get a note from the government saying you better not go there? Is there anything other than the arrival of this list and your name being on it?
5: Yeah, I think, I think that's it. I mean, uh, there is a sort of cryptic sentence at the end that's saying that further actions might follow, but it's not clear what that might be. And quite frankly, as long as it doesn't involve nerve agents, I'm uh, I'm kind of relaxed. Um, You know,
2: we can all joke about this, John, but, you know, you bring up a very valid point. No, you're not traveling to Russia anytime soon, but we certainly know what the antics of Russia can be like. So are you concerned?
5: Well, I mean, it's probably not a good idea to be... uh, it's Not great to be singled out by a regime as ruthless as this, and it, you know, I mean, it's you're right, it does yeah. murder its enemies, but um, but it's got a lot of enemies right now, and I'd imagine there's a few more in, in front of me, so I'm not particularly concerned. I wasn't planning to travel to, to Moscow anytime soon. I think for most people on that list, it's purely symbolic, James and that, um, you know, I mean, maybe apart from um, Mark McKinnon, and my colleague at the Globe, who is a foreign correspondent, and he, he does go to Russia. So that's going to be an issue for him. Um, less so for me, though, for sure. So why do you think you were on the list? Well, I've been writing quite extensively about um, yeah. Canada needing to up its game as far as uh, its military contribution. Um, it's uh, been very slow in committing to military aid, far behind most of its allies. You know, to this point, our, the highlight was really sending a 100 Cold War era um, anti-tank mm. uh, weapons, which is not really going to tip the balance. And there was a whole bunch of reasons for this. And I think I'd been hammering the bureaucracy for being, you know, the, the Department of National Defence doesn't want to give up any of its kit. The Department of Global Affairs doesn't think we should be arming anybody. It's It's against lethal aid. In total, and uh, and the government, the government is just calcified by fears that it might offend Russia. So yeah, I mean it's it's it wasn't for nothing that they put me on the list.
2: Um And obviously, anybody that reads your stuff knows what your stance is. That being said, you're certainly not the only one. Are you surprised this list isn't 161?
5: Well, this is the second list, so there have been. Uh, I mean, they 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 sanctioned every MP and every senator, and yeah. most of the. Uh, ministers offices in the last round uh, this was a slightly more eclectic list it was well this was slightly more targeted i guess i mean these were people who they felt had said something in particular um whereas the last one was pretty blanket all all senators and mps so uh, uh you know we, you know w- at some point would i be wary of uh, traveling abroad to countries that have got an extradition agreement with russia I'm certainly wary of that already with China. So yeah, Mm. people like me, um, probably including politicians, have got to be a little bit wary of this, as as the world. You know, I think we're all going to start living in a smaller world. That's the bottom line. You know, we're not going to trade as much. We're probably not going to travel as much.
6: Mm,
2: interesting. Uh, you were speaking about Canada's contribution and, and what we are contributing. There was obviously another uh, announcement this week by both the US and Canada. The Prime Minister very secretive of about, about it all, saying, well, we don't want to let the enemy know about what we're doing. Yeah, well, they've, uh, they've
5: just announced that, actually. Just within minutes of me coming on here, um, they have just announced that it's going to be a number of uh, what they're called M777 uh, artillery weapons, cannons. They're very modern, very light, very powerful, and they're already in Ukraine. And I think that what happened here is that Canada was, you know, petrified of offending the Russians. And then Biden came out and said, well, we're going to send howitzers and we're going to send armored cars. So Trudeau felt emboldened to say, well, we'll send, I mean, we only have somewhere around 37 and we're only sending four, but it's still a contribution. And they also said they're going to... um, this is something I reported on last week, saying that uh, they, they're finalising a contract for commercial, what they call commercial patent armoured vehicles. The company in Mississauga called Rochelle, who I think will win this contract. And essentially they're Ford F-150s with uh, armour on them, um, as opposed to the, to the LAVs, which are essentially small tanks, uh, the ones that we used in Afghanistan. Uh, quite why we're not sending the LAVs and we're sending these things, which are going to have to be Something will have to be built from, from scratch. I'm not sure. But uh, but the company is owned by Ukrainians. So maybe that's got something to do with it.
2: Hmm. John Iveson with us, journalist with the National Post. And one of the 61 Canadians just uh, recently announced uh, that they're banned from entering Russia, uh, from Russian officials. John, thanks so much for the time. I know you're busy. Uh, much appreciated. Be well and stay safe.
5: Yeah. Thank you very much. Cheers.
0: Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk 900 CHML.
2: We don't have to tell you about inflation. We don't have to tell you how much uh, gas fuel. Uh, for your car, propane for your tank, natural gas, whatever, uh, energy prices have literally skyrocketed. And there's a fascinating column that you can find right now on the global news and CHML websites by, uh, Gregory Jack, vice president, public affairs for Ipsos Public Affairs. And the headline, uh, reads, and it's, it's, it's an interesting point. Carbon taxes are meant to boost gas prices. Why aren't governments cheering hikes at the pump? And, you know, you ask many Canadians how concerned they are about climate change. Of course, housing and inflation and and all of that has has certainly taken the headlines uh, of late. But consistently, climate change is at the top of of polls when we have elections and and such. That is the most concern. Yet, as soon as gas prices go through the roof, the same people, everyone starts screaming. I shouldn't say the same people, but perhaps not uh but you know so uh you know the same thing with targets that we set uh we have very very ambitious targets i don't think we've hit any of them although it does make for great rhetoric around uh election time and such so let's uh bring in gregory jack to talk about all of this from ipsos greg thanks for the time i hope you're well
4: i'm good how are you
2: I'm doing very well. This is a very interesting uh, point that you've brought up in that we all want to curb and and help uh, with climate change. I guess what's different here is how we go about doing it. Um, but yet when we see gas prices and fuel prices go up, we we start screaming and yelling and, and wondering what to do. Uh, are we speaking out of both sides of our mouth here?
7: I, I think a little bit, yeah. I think that uh, governments are are definitely trying to Give people the impression that they're 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 solving the climate change problem at the same time as they're sending money back to them. So it, it's it's a, it's a difficult thing, right? And 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 people are are a bit confused by it, as I think you are as well.
2: And you know, it, it's uh, it's fascinating when you see these types of goals because they're goals that can often never be hit, and it's really really difficult to prove success. So when you say we're going to fix the you know the climate change situation, how do you gauge what's a win?
7: Well, I think a win for the government is uh, a reduction in, in emissions, but the, the carbon tax has, has definitely cost people more money, but we have not seen any evidence that it has brought down emissions. And so as we go forward um, with gas prices, the way they are, you know, as my article pointed out, we, we see very high prices, which, are, which is the entire intent of the carbon tax Um, and and not a lot of change in behavior. And and that's one of the things that I think uh, Canadians need to think about, right? Are you going to change your behavior if gas is more expensive? I don't think that they are. Uh, another issue, which
2: we don't seem to talk about as much, but we did maybe five or 10 years ago, is where is the money going? You're saying we're paying more, we're paying more, we're paying more, yet we're constantly hearing, we're never hearing our targets, we're not hitting our targets, we're not seeing a reduction. Um, Do Canadians know where this money is going?
7: Well, I'm not sure what Canadians know. I mean, I think that they believe that the carbon tax is intended to drive environmental change as I pointed out in the article, that's not really what the carbon tax is doing it's sending money back to Canadians um, you know and if they reduce their carbon usage if they drive less if they use less fossil fuels then yeah they're going to save money but there's no real accounting of how that money is being spent and the, the 10% that is not going back to Canadians that is held by the government, being spent on a variety of issues which are all important right in in, indigenous issues education that kind of thing but there's not really an accounting of how this is uh working to reduce our carbon um footprint
2: is the carbon is the climate change issue uh being used just as a general revenue generator do you think because i think that's been a lot of concern especially in the past that you know again it sounds good we're not seeing results but it's really you know we need this to fight uh, climate change, when, as you just mentioned, it's going into general coffers.
7: Well, I wouldn't say that. I think the governments really are committed to doing something about this. I, I think they're finding ways to uh, to do that. But I'm not certain in the current environment, with with you know oil and gas prices rising, that that uh, they're seeing the results that they're expecting. And it seems to be that it's always
2: one or the other. This is a discussion that's always had on the extremes. Um, what about our thoughts towards a mixture of energy sources? Because even at this point, there really doesn't seem to be a clear alternative.
7: No, right now, I mean, there, there's no way to power uh, you know an airplane with wind power. Uh, oil and gas is is the, the the dominant fuel source for for a lot of things, and a lot of people in northern communities can't afford. To, to switch over to a, 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 you know, an electric car. Now eventually that might happen, but right now there's really no alternative. And so the choice is between you know an electric car which is going to cost you a bit more money and, and, and charging stations are not um, available. In the long run, I think that we are going to switch over to, to these kind of fuel sources, but right mm-hmm. now it's kind of difficult to see how that's going to happen overnight.
2: Should we be cheering higher gas prices? Well, meaning I mean, that we're doing something. Look at us, we're contributing.
7: Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that um, we should be cheering any move toward um, a more fuel efficient and, and, and uh, less energy in, in intrusive approach. But right now, the gas prices are high. People are feeling the pinch and, and governments are trying to find a way to thread that needle between helping people out at the one hand, um, and also doing something for the climate. So I think that's what we should be sharing.
2: It seems that it's all very confusing when politicians try to explain this to us, whether it's a uh, carbon tax or a cap and trade. Um, do you think more clarity needs to be put forth in order for to, to help people understand what is actually going on?
0: I
7: do. I think governments should be more clear about what they're up to, yes. What about in the various
2: forms? I mean, again, it's confusing for people with carbon tax. Uh, whether it's a carbon tax, there was a cap and trade issue uh, in Ontario a few years ago. Which system is the best? Does anybody know?
7: I'm not really, you know, in a position to say which one's the best. But I think governments have an obligation, according to our polling. You know, people expect governments to have a plan, and I don't think they they, uh, they don't think that they do. Um, I don't know which one's the best, but I think that Canadians expect to hear more from governments on what that plan is.
2: So we want a plan. Are we, are we convinced that what we're doing is the right thing?
7: Um, I, I think right now people have questions, and, and so those are good questions to ask, and so uh, they should ask them. But, but at the moment, um, governments are certainly taking money in, in, in terms of the carbon tax, and then sending it back to people, and, and that does not seem to be according to our data uh, and, and the data of uh, of others measuring this, changing behavior. And that's the main point that mm. I would say that people have to think about.
2: Gregory Jack with us, Vice President, Public Affairs, Ipsos Public Affairs. Greg, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
0: Thank you, Marash. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Obviously, hockey fans uh, mourning the loss of Guy Lafleur, Montreal Canadian who passed away at the age of 70, uh, announced today after a battle with cancer. Let's bring in Stephen Ellis, web editor for the Hockey News. And with us now, Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We all knew that uh, Lafleur was ill and, and was ailing and such, but still something like this, its uh, it makes an impact, doesn't it?
8: For sure. This is one of the biggest legends in hockey, obviously a huge staple of Montreal Canadiens culture, won many Stanley Cups, had so many goals, so many points. Uh, and of course, played some other teams too. But this is someone where even if if you had never got a chance to see him play or too young or whatever, you know the impact he had. This is a guy that Marty St. Louis, the Montreal Canadiens coach, said today was one of his favorite players growing up. And it's just because he was so skilled, so talented, and uh, just kind of brought everything to the table. So uh, a legend for sure.
2: And when he started with, uh, with the Canadians, not not immediate success off the top.
8: No, it took a bit because he was the first overall pick in, in 1971, but it took a while for him to kind of to figure things out. But uh, he, he had over 500 goals with the Canadians, so I'd say it worked out pretty well and won multiple Stanley Cups and eventually won in 1973. But it did take a bit for him to kind of figure it out. But once he did, the obviously, Hockey Hall of Famer. So uh, it was quite the career
2: obviously for folk- folklore has it it has something to do with the helmet uh, can you tell us that story
8: yeah he never wore a helmet and he always uh, had his hair which you look at it now and you know, like like players how, how much hockey hair matters to some players especially the younger generation <laughs> they call it flow <laughs> this is a guy who was doing it way before anyone else like the 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 long hair but like it didn't look like he was going to join some like 70s or 80s like rock band like this is a guy like it just it fits so well and and when he would skate down the ice fast he was flowing he was uh, i'm not sure it was super aerodynamic but it worked
2: yeah that along with the sideburns talk about this team and how the fans like this is a religion for montreal Canadiens fans especially to have a local hero somebody from quebec
8: for sure, I was at the Stanley Cup final last year when they were there, and they showed Lafleur and they showed uh, Patrick Waugh sitting together, and they showed some others in the building, and you, it, it was such a special moment because there was all the stories about Lafleur having to fight cancer, and and people kind of knew, like you know, there, there's not many opportunities for the fans might be able to see him going forward at that point and uh to, for them to for him to be able to see the stanley cup final in person after so many years of the canadians not being competitive i think was awesome but this is someone when when the canadians return home and we saw how big of a crowd cheer they had for carrie price when he returned which happened to be mm. the same day that mike bossy died and it was such a big thing now when you're going to see gila fleur one of the greatest ever play in the canadians uniform when they finally do something for him this could be a huge deal
2: uh you know and and uh, you know like you said people knew that that he was ill and, and and that he was passing and such but again such an impact uh as a player we talked about the helmet and the flowing hair being a hockey player back in that day wasn't quite the way it is now especially when it comes to physical fitness and the lifestyle that the boys led <laughs>
8: No, players would be drinking through the summer, smoking during the season. They would be sometimes smoking in between periods. It was something that now, like there, there's no off time for players to, to have to do that. They're, they're so busy They're training all the time. So physical fitness is such a different thing. And but but he that also just kind of shows you how incredible some of these athletes were, where they didn't have the the training regimens that they do now, where it's it's so focused on just uh, on maximizing efficiency and doing everything. And that wasn't a thing when LaFleur was playing or or any of those other guys playing in the 67s 80s it's it's a totally new world and uh so it's it's just crazy that he was that we have so many legends from that era when today it's a completely different type of of training and everything
2: how will he be remembered
8: he'll be talked about you
2: you know the helmet the hair the cigarette all that sort of stuff on the ice how's he going to be remembered
8: for sure, as a legend, a guy that's one of the best to, to ever play for the Canadians. And it's one thing to be one of the best for uh, any team, but to be one of the best of the team that's got the most Stanley Cups and to be such an important part of those 70s teams that were so dominant, uh, the Montreal Canadiens were. Uh, he'll he'll always be remembered as one of the greatest to ever play in a Canadian uniform, and he's a hockey Hall of Famer for a reason.
2: Uh, and what do you think it's like uh, for the Montreal Canadiens organization today? What it's like to be a personnel, even a player?
8: It's Today, personally, will be a tough one, obviously, because this is a guy that was so important to the team, and it's been a tough year where there's been kind of just a lot of hits. But I think this is an opportunity where they get to celebrate the the life Mm. of someone so important. Uh, Patrick Wall actually said it best that he hopes that when they return home, it's it's not a moment of silence. It's a moment of cheering, and it's giving an opportunity to show how much people really, truly appreciated him. Because, again, if you were a Canadiens fan, you know how important he was on and off the ice, and you definitely want to show the appreciation. It's going to be tough for a few days, but I think when they finally get a chance to, to show what they how they feel about them, maybe it's going to be pretty special.
2: Stephen Ellis with us, web editor for the Hockey News, commenting on the passing of Guy Lafleur at the age of 70. Stephen, thanks for the time. Be well.
8: Absolutely. Thank you so much
2: day number 58 of the russian invasion of ukraine uh, many thought certainly the russians that this would be over in a few days and they would be on their way and ukraine would be very uh, similar to crimea that obviously not the case we've all seen the horrific uh, images and and just the barbaric uh, battles that are going on as ukraine tries to stand up to uh, russian military uh, mariupol obviously a uh, a very important city and and as well a turning point at this point, simply because Putin has uh, declared victory over uh, the city of Mariupol. What does that mean moving forward? How significant is this city? Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Arne Kislenko. uh, International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto and Department of History at Ryerson University, and with us now. Arne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Is it too early for Putin to claim victory here, or is it inevitable?
9: yes no it is too early and and of course the question is what kind of victory he's proclaiming and and to, to you know to which audience he's speaking so he needs to do that for his own domestic uh, uh, politics he needs to come across as having achieved something for this colossal waste of uh, human life and resources um in terms of you know the broader sense of victory obviously he hasn't achieved that he's nowhere near that uh, the first phase of the war was clearly aimed at subjugating all of ukraine and that clearly failed So now you're in a second phase where he's trying to focus principally on the eastern Donbass um, and and potentially all of South Ukraine. And that's where this idea that, you know, we're close to victory comes uh, with the fall of Mariupol. Uh,
2: So, again, he's declared victory or or close to it. Um, What happens if things go awry? Why is this not close to victory? Could Ukraine still mount an attack here?
9: Yeah they could the the tactics have changed fundamentally uh, the, the Russians got got bogged down and as we've all learned their supply lines were were very poor their uh, command structures were very weak so they got they got sort of uh, bogged down in an urban warfare, and that suited the defender. Now they're shifting to the much more open, um, you know, geographically open areas of, uh, of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and they're they're very clearly trying to engage Ukraine in a much more conventional fight. And the Ukrainians, you know, thankfully aren't that stupid. Uh, so their tactics are changing. There's even some evidence that they've gone on the offensive through special operations behind Russian lines, trying to hinder the Russian lines. The reason it's important is because you know Russia still has tremendous firepower, a lot more soldiers and weapons. Uh, they're clearly amassing new and fresh troops as well as the disorganized and defeated ones that have fallen back there. But they're trying to, to fight a much more conventional warfare. Um, and where Mariupol comes in is that it's, it's basically the key port city in, in, uh, in the southeast of the country, which would allow the Russians to have a land base a bridge, basically, from Crimea into Ukraine, and help them consolidate the eastern regions as well. I think what we're all waiting to see is just how far the Russian military is prepared to to go. Uh, once again, if not a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, then at least a focus on the southern part of Ukraine. I, I saw uh, yesterday in the news some Russian generals talking about uh, Transnistria, which is, you know, a breakaway republic on the Moldovan frontier where there's uh Russian soldiers there and that's quite a sweep. That's a south uh you know southern Ukraine um a couple hundred miles up from the coast. So it, it remains to be seen what exactly the Russian military strategy is in the future. What it what it is clearly now is a focus on the east, uh and that's the Donbass.
2: Uh as we mentioned earlier, uh Putin declaring victory, what happens if Ukraine does mount a counterattack and they end up losing this or he has to uh, has to has to walk this back? I mean that will be a huge setback for Putin.
9: Well, for sure. And and listen, I think he is, you know, I, I think even most Russians are well aware this hasn't gone you know to plan, so that, that the, the question of a victory is already, you know, in quotation marks for for many average Russians. Um, if the Ukrainians are able to hold on uh, to, to the, you know, to the Donbass, it's going to humiliate him, uh, and that can, of course, be good in the one sense. Right? Nobody wants to see him be victorious in this. Uh, it could disrupt his uh, hold on power at home. But don't forget that this is a, a very, um, you know, clearly
2: dangerous guy, and and now he's well, that was a my next animal. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly what animal. I was about to say. Yeah. What are you yeah, I, concerned that if he gets to, if he becomes that cornered animal, that the nukes come out?
9: You know what? To be to be totally candid with you, uh, everything's on the table. We we were all all of us, you know, supposedly expert people in the shadows were shocked by the, the the invasion as it is. So I think we'd be foolhardy to say it's it's not in the cards. He He's capable of doing just about anything as war crimes uh, and the war itself would, would suggest. So, yeah, of course, I'm worried about that. Um, you know, I think that the better news, if you want to call it that, certainly not for Ukrainians, is that the Russians have scaled down some of their objectives. They're intending to get away with the Donbass as a whole uh, and to denigrate the, the Ukrainian military. And and you know maybe that'll that'll be enough. I, I noticed him talking about the the you know May um, uh, Victory Day celebrations in Russia, which right. is, uh, is May ninth, right? So maybe that's a target date for him to do something along the lines of suing for peace or negotiating or something but he's a dangerous man and, and I think we all have to face the reality that anything's possible
2: we've see, all seen the the images of that sprawling steel plant that seems to go on for kilometers and the, the, we understand there's an area of underground tunnels and such and that people are Ukrainians are held up there um, and, and now Putin says well we'll just you know seal it off and starve them out your thoughts yeah
9: yeah well you know that is his tactic and and uh, it's it's you know, now sadly typical of a man who has no regard whatsoever uh, for uh, for human life, including his own soldiers. You know, the really scary thing is that it's um, it's it's very reminiscent of what the Nazis did at Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. Including his own language, and and for a guy that professes to care and think so much and knows so much about history, that is terribly ironic, but this is turning into a Stalingrad in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I hope he remembers the outcome of Stalingrad, where those you know few and far between hold up in the city held off. Uh, the monstrous invasion. So I don't know that that's possible in this case. I think it's it's more likely that Mariupol will fall. Um, but we we have to acknowledge the Ukrainians uh, have put up an unbelievable fight. It really is something you know both heroic and remarkable, um, and they are a skilled military force. And with more and more aid from the West, that's the real question: is how fast and how much can can they be aided? Uh, militarily, uh, I think the Russians have to be wary uh, that the protracted war certainly does not serve their interests. The Ukrainians can fight, and they're demonstrating that.
2: Dr. Arne Kislenko with us, International Relations Program, Trinity College, U of T, and Department of History at Ryerson. Uh, Arne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too. Take your care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, we were talking
2: to Jason Farr and not so much about his politics, but just the movement from uh, a councillor. And obviously, he's going to try to run for uh, provincial parliament and such. And he said something to me. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, that sounds like something Larry Deani would say. Uh, so, of course, I want to invite my favorite liberal on, Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well i am
10: doing very well scott and all the better for hearing your wonderful thoughts
2: (laughs) and i know you're sincere about that all right um, So I, ha- you know, I love Jason. He's a very personable guy. He's he- he's always been a very likable fellow, and I, you know, I've known him from the media business and such, as well as what he's doing at Council and such. Uh, you know, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but he said something that I found fascinating. As soon as he said to me, I, I immediately thought of you, Larry. And he said, uh, "The Liberal Party is the party of the center." Mm. And I thought that that well, you know, maybe back in the day it was, but you know, I, I'm finding that hard. And we'll we'll discuss this in a second. I'm finding that hard to digest simply because we know what's happening federally with the uh, NDP and the Liberals. We certainly know of the last 15 years with the Liberals provincially, and and the green energy, and, and 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 I've talked to Kathleen Wynne many times, another great lady, but you know, went a little too far, a little too far mm-hmm. to the left. Are we seeing now, perhaps? a change in the Liberal Party where they will come back to the center? Is this what the the new regime perhaps is going to try to do? What are your thoughts?
10: Well, so first of all, I I do agree with um, uh, Jason Farr that the Liberals uh, have always been the party of the middle uh, and they've tilted um, left or right um, a little bit from the center uh, depending on what was happening uh, globally and nationally or provincially uh, and that's what uh, you know I think makes them an attractive party that they can they can do that they can tack one way or the other depending on the circumstances that uh, confronts them and so when you recall um, uh, d- during uh, the uh, the uh, Paul Martin years uh, you would say that probably, um, they were a little right of center. Uh, and also during the Christian years when they were hammering away at the uh, deficits, they were a little right of center. Uh, but now they've gone a little left of center. And that's because uh, the conservatives have gone way right in terms of <laughs> the Harper years, at least. And now with Paul Lievre, uh gaining all of the attention in, the, in their leadership race, he's totally embraced populism. And the policies of, uh, of uh, facile solutions and slogans, as opposed to the solid policies the conservatives have always had, of good government, fiscal responsibility, and all of that stuff. So I agree with that perspective. Uh, but you're right. If you're if you're a um, an elector today and you look at the behavior of uh, the leaders at all par- at all parties, you're a little confused about where they stand you know, federally, the uh, the uh, Liberals uh, have attached themselves to the NDP to preserve their minority government, uh, and so that puts them squarely on the on the left side of the spectrum, and the pandemic has certainly brought out the spending side of that government uh, because of the billions of dollars that they've contributed to the economy and to people as they were fighting, uh, you know, the, the close-downs and the shutdowns of, of the pandemic. So, so a government that that was always in the middle is now certainly on the left-hand side. But they're trying to preserve, um, they're trying to preserve their their status uh, at the federal level. If you look at the provincial scene, Mister um, Ford has been spending money like crazy. I mean, he doesn't talk about fiscal responsibility anymore. And
2: is he really not that- the most is he not the most left-leaning conservative leader we've had since Bill Davis? That's totally. what I'm thinking, Larry.
10: Totally. And, and again, he's responding to events. You know, the pandemic has forced his hand in terms of spending money. But he's also brought uh, some populist uh, gimmicks to the table, especially this election. You know, I received, uh, my wife and I received uh, a check, uh, a couple of checks uh, in the range of $400, different amounts. I have no idea why we both got different amounts. She got more knighted. I guess she's a little more deserving. But the, 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 my my point though is that that burns a hole in the in the provincial budget. But he's doing it. Uh, he's also promised uh, to, if elected uh, on June second, uh, to, to, to lower gasoline prices by removing five point two cents uh, of uh, provincial taxes. Of, and that's all uh, well and good. But you know who doesn't want to pay less for, ta- for for gasoline? But it's going to mean that there's less money in the provincial treasury and something is either gonna have to be cut or taxes raised down the road. But if you're looking for a traditional conservative response from Mr. Ford, you're not getting it today. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, on the other hand, uh, had a reputation of being uh, not only a centrist, but maybe a little more fiscally uh, responsible Uh, when he was uh, a cabinet minister. We'll see what kind of policies, policies they bring forward But it doesn't just stop there. Doesn't just stop there. Even at the municipal level, um, you know, municipal councils. uh, Scott, and I'll I'll stop and give you a chance to talk. But municipal councils that are traditionally on the left side of the spectrum only because municipal councils are in the business of spending money, of providing services. They're not in the business of you know uh, uh, doing anything but that. Uh, But you look at some of our councillors; they've tacked way left. Uh, and there's our, there are Hamiltonians very active that want our council to go even further left, yeah, which may yeah. happen uh, in the next uh, municipal election. So, you know, if you're looking for traditional definitions of where the center is, good luck.
2: Uh, You know, you use the word populism, and we've talked about this on the show for years, because the the left will always point to whether it's Trump, whether it's a freedom convoy, whether it's Poliev, that it's populist politics, populist politics, populist politics. And Larry, uh, when Stephen Del Duca comes out and announces a handgun ban, it does not get any more populist than that. And I think both sides of the political spectrum can use the word populist quite freely.
10: Yeah, there's no question about that. Although I, I would I would draw the line between um, between uh, you know reacting to violence on our streets um, and coming up with a policy that addresses that and the sort of. But Larry, the Prime
2: Minister said the exact same thing during his last two election campaigns.
10: Yeah, uh, and, and, that, and that's fine. Uh, and and I think it's well overdue that something is done about that. You're you're seeing carnage uh unprecedented carnage um certainly in the united states but i would say
2: again that's populism that's populism larry i mean we all we all know and and there's there's the clear definition right there we all know this is an issue we all know that something that gets people's attention but at the end of the day, the handgun issue isn't any different now than it was before, 10 years ago. Uh, so again, so, this is, this so is, this is, well, hang on a sec. This is the third place party trying to make some hay with a very populist statement. Even though it's centered around safety, it's still populist.
10: But here's a distinction that I'd make, and there's a great article. Um, that will be in the Globe and Mail, I saw it online by Andrew Coyne, who's by no means a left of center columnist. I'm sure you have a chance to read Andrew's um, uh, commentary. Uh, he writes about the populism that Pierre Paul Yev- or, or just populism in general. And here's how he defines it. Um, in an era when we are being told what we cannot do, we cannot um, uh, congregate because of the pandemic, we must wear masks, uh, we uh, we uh, have to get vaccinated, so we're, we're told things what we cannot do and what we must do. Uh, you get politicians uh, like Paul e. who come out and they say, "No, nah, you don't have to believe any of that. You, you don't have to wear masks. You don't have to get vaccinated." You uh, I think you're going.
2: To- I think you're going too far to the extreme now. You know, well, I'm I-
10: quoting. I'm quoting Andrew Coyne here. Yeah, yeah uh, So go ahead. These are his thoughts that I'm saying, and his point is that that has a certain attraction. To people, that people who feel constrained and felt the weight of the pandemic on their shoulders love to hear somebody say, we don't have to do the things that we've been told that we must do or not do over the last several years. And that's the populist appeal. Is it the right appeal? No. I think most people would, would agree that that isn't good policy, but it sure feels good to hear it. And therefore, we flock as people are flocking to, to the speeches that mr paul is given now,
2: again i draw candidate. i draw i gotta let you go here larry but i draw okay. on the other side here you know tax the rich ban handguns it's the same thing larry but i gotta let you go we're out of time i'll give you the last okay. word go ahead real quick
10: uh, no i you know uh, <laughs> you you're right that there are there's populism on both sides bernie sanders you yep. know we can have time to talk example. about it, but he was a uh, you know a good example of a populist on the left It's wrong <laughs>
2: Larry, always fun to talk to you. Larry Danny, former mayor of Hamilton. Thanks so much. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley and I talking just the other day about how Stephen Del Duca's uh, pledge to ban handguns, which, by the way, Justin Trudeau has also said during his last couple of election campaigns, was certainly populist politics, just like tax the rich is. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well.
11: It is Friday, Scott. Who could not be doing well? I'm loving it. You
2: know, we were having this discussion about populism, and immediately I thought about you, because we've talked about it a million times, and as I said, Larry referring to Polyev and populism, populism, populism. Yet, when I mentioned uh, Del Duca and the gun ban, he, well, that's for safety. So, I don't know how that changes things. Uh, and again, you know, taxing the rich, uh, all the other things that are not kitchen table issues uh it seems to be one-sided whereas i believe there uh, i'm tired of either extreme on either side of the political spectrum uh i think there's populism on both sides
11: words matter and uh here's the thing is both sides are trying to control the narrative and make the other side look out of touch or silly or stupid or elite or not elite or whatever else it's all about being the party or being the philosophy or whatever else that grabs the the narrative so that your side sounds reasonable and everyone else sounds lunatic that's mm-hmm. what the whole that's what it's all about now always because we are so we're so divided and and you know Scott I've argued this for a long long time we you, uh, you say you were talking well, I didn't get to hear it unfortunately you said you were talking with Larry Deney about the mm-hmm. center the center. Yeah is one of the most ridiculous things that everyone seems to want to argue for right now. Everybody believes they are the center. And so if you believe that you're in the center, but really you lean to the right. Now, you got to picture this on a line. Picture a line and draw a mark right in the center. If you really are to the right of that, anybody who's to the left, even though they might be just a little to the left, they seem way left of where you are, but yeah, you believe yeah. you're the center. And yeah. the other way, too. If yeah. you look at the center and believe you're the center, anybody to the right seems yeah. like an extreme right-winger.
5: Yeah.
11: And the center becomes this floating, um, convenient point that we all plop ourselves in. A few people will ex- accept that I'm way left or way right, but everyone believes, oh, I'm pretty close to the center. Yeah, And that puts a... It, it completely throws off all the narrative. Because now if someone... If someone doesn't believe in abortion, let's say, for moral reasons, religious reasons, whatever, and, and they are immediately an extremist on the right. Yeah. If somebody believes in the environment, they are immediately an extremist on the left. Now, there are people, again, in both camps who go way right, way left on everything. But this, this idea of the center, it, it, becomes a, it, it becomes an impossible argument to make. Until people can be convinced that they are not really in the center to begin with,
2: and again, at the end of the day, uh, I think a lot of this discussion is because now extremism has such a vocal uh, has such vocal support.
11: Sure, sure, and so well, and I can
2: hear the let's... intercom, so I can't hear anything. All right, it is five fifty seven. Thank you, Scott. Got to let you go there, uh, and don't forget, Scott Ridley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator
0: thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com
2: all right that's a wrap for us thanks for listening always appreciated thanks to the two wills and diana and dave for helping out and of course you and as always we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word sandra
6: uh thanks scott so like many people um i don't Um, know the Liberal Party leader, and I was really shocked when I heard that the first platform out of its mouth had to do with guns, and kind of said to myself, what kind of a ding-dong party would start there? Thank you. But
2: it's not populism.